Good morning. Today's headlines, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits China to talk with CCP leader Xi Jinping and other officials. Find out what was discussed and what's next for U.S.-China relations. President Biden was in Pennsylvania this weekend. He spoke with a crowd made up of union members to launch his re-election campaign. Podcast host Joe Rogan issues a challenge to a prominent vaccine scientist. He wants him to debate presidential candidate RFK Jr. and his show, on his show I shall say, and the stakes are high. Find out why. In tragic news, multiple shootings took place over the weekend. At least 23 were shot at a Juneteenth celebration near Chicago, and an officer in Pennsylvania lost his life. And we take a look at a young man from California who set a new and truly incredible world record for solving the Rubik's Cube. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. June 19th. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of Blinken's visit to China. Well, yeah, especially since Blinken has said the Chinese regime is undermining the very international order that paved the way for China's rise. Right. A lot of tensions between these two superpowers and a lot for a lot of reasons, though Blinken has said the world needs a stable relationship between them. Yes, and we're glad you're here and we hope you had a good weekend. We're going to dive into this big story right now. As mentioned, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping in Beijing today. Talks were held with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang and top diplomat Wang Yi over the weekend. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the meetings and why some U.S. lawmakers are calling the visit to China a mistake. Blinken is the highest level U.S. official to set foot in China since President Biden took office. He is the first Secretary of State to visit in five years, when his predecessor Mike Pompeo visited China for one day. A Department of State spokesperson says Blinken emphasized the importance of diplomacy and maintaining open channels of communication during the meeting. Both U.S. and China officials described talks as candid and constructive. China's Foreign Minister, Qin Gong, describes Taiwan as the core of China's core interests and the most consequential issue during Sunday's meeting. A readout from Beijing's foreign ministry referred to Taiwan as the most prominent risk in the U.S.-China ties. CCP leader Xi Jinping has stepped up efforts to prepare China's military and population for conflict. The communist regime leader has repeatedly vowed to annex Taiwan by force if necessary. Blinken also met with China's top diplomat Wang Yi Monday morning. The U.S. Secretary of State's originally planned trip was postponed. That was in response to the Chinese spy balloon incident, which Blinken said undermined the purpose of the trip. Several Republican lawmakers issued statements asking why Blinken would choose to visit now. House GOP Conference Chair Elise Stefanik says Blinken is legitimizing the CCP's continued subversion of U.S. sovereignty with his visit and called for the Biden administration to immediately cease their weak and desperate pursuit of a thaw in relations with the Chinese regime. Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn says President Biden should be focusing on building a strong military that can compete with the CCP's quest for global domination instead of trying to appease the communist regime given its intentions. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall called on Blinken to impose sanctions on CCP officials. Blinken has invited Chin to visit Washington, a meeting the State Department spokesperson says both sides agreed to schedule at a mutually suitable time. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
And as for Blinken's meeting with Xi, it was expected but not confirmed until just an hour before the talks. We're bringing in David Zhang, host of China Insider, to get his insight on Blinken's visit. Good morning, David. Could you please start by telling us more about the two different sides in this meeting and what their different objectives are, also considering that Xi agreed to meet with Blinken, of course. Yeah, Evelyn, good morning. And uh, I think the fundamental idea here is that China is showing its arrogance and it wants to portray itself as the bigger uh, power in this relationship, not of equal. And so we see that from the very moment uh, Blinken landed in Beijing and off the airport, he was treated with uh, humiliation. And this shows that China is trying to portray this idea that they're controlling the discourse. Now, uh, Blinken on the other side with the Biden administration, what they're doing is trying to seek some sort of a common ground in this great power competition. And that basically is uh, this new idea of, although they don't say it's a cold war, but that's really where it's going. And uh, in this, everybody, nobody wants to go to war with China, but uh, we do have to see that uh, two sides are trying to maintain some level of decency in terms of not trying to break down into a, a confrontation of, of both fronts. Uh, but I do think that the United States offered a lot of concession to uh, get this meeting with Xi. And we see that they met from uh, Qinggang, then to Wani, now to Xi. All this was deliberately planned. So it made Blinken look like he had to go through two struggle sessions before he got a short meeting with Xi Jinping. And again, it's a humiliation on the side of the uh, United States, and I just didn't think that this was the right opportunity or the moment for Blinken to visit China. Now, let's go into a little bit more details of um, the U.S.-China relationships. What does this visit mean for that, and especially Americans? Right. The bottom line is that the two sides aren't ready for a full-front confrontation. Uh, the United States and allies have been talking about this term called de-risking. Uh, that's really just this intermediary term from going into full confrontation. And, and that doesn't really offer us any insight into what exactly is the plan uh, in the bilateral relationship. But I think the United States has something of uh, an, an engagement policy right now from the Biden administration where they want to talk with China. They want to get this understanding between the two countries. But I just don't think that China is willing to actually do the same. And I think that they're trying their own plan, which is to decouple from the United States and the rest, of the rest of the world in preparation to invade Taiwan. And in that process, I really don't think major changes are going to happen where there's going to be an improvement in a major way. We could see something like flights increasing uh, between China and the United States or more exchange students, but that's really about it. And I think the bottom line is the relationship won't improve that much. I see. Now, what do you make of the readouts from the two sides? Any indications on how well the meetings went? From both the readouts with Qinggang and Wang Yi, we see an aggressive tone from the Chinese side. They blame the United States for every major international issue, uh, saying that it's all been caused by one side, and that's the United States. And they really tried to paint the picture that uh, it is up to the United States to repair the bilateral relationship. In reality, we're seeing the opposite, right? We saw the spy balloons, we saw the spy plane uh, getting shook by the Chinese plane off the South China Sea and the, the Cuba spy bases. All of these are aggressive actions committed by the Chinese Communist Party. And so the action and the words don't match up. And I really think that this is, again, trying to build that discourse saying that China is on uh, above the United States and that it's up for the U.S. to beg for forgiveness. Very interesting insights. Thank you for breaking this down for us, David Zhang. I appreciate it.
Turning now to some domestic affairs, President Biden kicked off his re-election campaign Saturday at a union rally in Pennsylvania. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what went down in the state the commander-in-chief hopes can propel him to a second term. Biden praised his administration's accomplishments before a friendly audience of over a thousand union workers. There are a lot of politicians in this country who can't say the word union. Because you know I'm not one of them. And called himself the most pro-labor president ever. The president touted several achievements during his tenure he views as wins, mentioning the bipartisan infrastructure law, a COVID relief package, and the debt ceiling deal. I told you when I ran for president, I'd have your back, and I have. He attempted to bond with the audience by singing the praises of union workers. Wall Street didn't build America, you did. Although economic wins were the centerpiece of the event, polls show many voters give him poor marks for his handling of the economy, especially as prices have soared post-pandemic. Biden made only brief mention of Donald Trump, the current frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, steering clear of the former president's recent federal indictment and arraignment. On Ukraine, the chief executive says a fast-tracked path to NATO membership isn't in the cards and says there won't be any free rides through the membership process, raising issues of government corruption within Ukraine's military and government. The comments come several days after NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the door to NATO is open for Kyiv. Russian President Vladimir Putin has long said Ukraine joining NATO is a non-starter, and last week said there's a serious danger of NATO being drawn into the conflict if members of the alliance continue to supply Ukraine with weapons. Meanwhile, Biden will be heading to California this week. He has four fundraisers in the San Francisco area. This as his campaign builds up its coffers and lays strategic foundations for 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Joe Rogan issued a challenge to vaccine scientist Peter Hotez on the weekend. He's offered to put $100,000 toward a charity of the scientist's choice. That's if he will debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the Joe Rogan podcast. Hotez shared a Vice article accusing Spotify of allowing Rogan to spread vaccine misinformation on Twitter. Rogan then responded with the challenge. Kennedy immediately accepted the challenge. He says a respectful, informative debate on the topic is something Americans deserve. Others, including Patrick, Bat David, and Andrew Tate, also joined the pledge. The charity debate pot is now up to over $1.5 million. Hotez said in a now-deleted tweet he wants the amount to be $50 million. He did not agree to the debate, but says he would be happy to come onto Rogan's show alone to have a meaningful discussion. Rogan called his response a non-answer. He says if Hotez was really serious about what he stands for, he would take the opportunity to reach a huge audience in debate. Rogan then asked him to suggest someone else better qualified if he knows one. Over the weekend, multiple shootings across the state. One Pennsylvania state trooper was killed Saturday and another critically injured in separate encounters on Saturday. The suspect first attacked a state police barracks. He opened fire with a large caliber rifle on marked patrol cars before fleeing. Police say the gunman appeared to be playing a cat and mouse game, calling 911 to give a location and then setting responders up for a potential ambush. The fallen officer was killed by a gunshot through the windshield of his patrol car. State police say the suspect was killed in an exchange of gunfire after the shootings. 
And in yet more violence, two people were killed and three injured in a shooting near Washington State Campground area on Saturday night. The campground was hosting people attending a nearby music festival. Officers pursued the suspect, who was then arrested. Organizers of the Beyond Wonderland Electronic Music Festival said the following day's events were canceled. And in a Chicago suburb, at least 23 people were shot, one fatally early Sunday during a Juneteenth celebration in a parking lot. Police say several victims were injured while attempting to flee the area. Officers were at the strip mall before the shooting to monitor the gathering, but were called away because of a nearby fight. They quickly returned upon hearing gunshots. Meanwhile, in Chicago, police say at least 27 people were shot, nine fatally, across the city over the weekend. In the wake of all the recent shooting incidents, we take a look at so-called smart guns that use biometrics to unlock a gun for shooting. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with inventor Kai Klepfer. Kai Klepfer is CEO and founder of BioFire Technologies. He's been working on designing a smart gun since he was in high school. So I started working on smart guns uh, as a teenager, kind of in the wake of the Aurora theater shooting. For me, that was my first sort of time thinking about uh, the, the more negative aspects of guns as, compo- as compared to, you know, going skeet shooting. The BioFire smart gun is a handgun that can be stored with fingerprint and 3D facial recognition to unlock it to shoot. The gun can hold biometric data for up to five authorized users. Klepfer says smart guns are intended to prevent unwanted access to criminals, and he believes the technology will make a meaningful impact on preventable firearm deaths among children. The inventor says the goal of a smart gun is to provide another choice for gun owners that ensures it's always going to be locked when it's outside of their control. So basically, the BioFire smart gun is always locked by default. As soon as the owner or some of the owner is chosen, picks it up, it unlocks with biometrics, uh, either fingerprint or facial recognition, and then it stays unlocked for as long as they're holding on to it, and they can use it just like any other handgun. There's no, there's no special steps, there's no buttons you need to push, anything like that. You just pick it up and it works. And then most importantly, as soon as it leaves the user's control, uh, it's going to relock automatically. But could smart guns ever be hacked? The, the gun has no wireless communications or anything like that, right? So there's no Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or cellular or anything like that. Um, and nobody, like not even BioFire, has the ability to access any of the information that's inside of the firearm. It's all stored encrypted, everything like that. The, the owner, basically the person that purchases the gun, um, is, has full control over that. So they can add and remove users. Opposition and debate concerning smart guns has been centered around fears of government mandates and reliability of the product. We really see choices being very, very important here, right? Um, and again, we, we've built a product that we, we hope many customers will choose to purchase, um, but it, it has to be a choice, right? Klepfer says smart guns are designed for very unpredictable defensive situations and work in complex environments. The guns have both fingerprint and facial recognition, and either one of them can be used to unlock the gun. Uh, if your hands are wet or dirty, you're wearing gloves, uh, that's going to have no impact on the facial recognition system. Um, and then, you know, let's say you're holding the gun behind your back or in a low ready position where your face is not in view, it's going to have no impact on fingerprints. And so the two of them combined is is very, very reliable. BioFire smart guns only come in 9mm caliber, but buyers are given multiple color choices and there are both left and right-handed versions. The company says its smart guns will hit the market at the end of the year and are currently available for pre-order. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, the Epic Times will premiere a new docudrama this evening called Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. And Titi speaks with the film's director. 
and a third of workers are worried about job security. But an expert says there's still an opportunity to negotiate a better salary or find another position. So get that story after the break. Welcome back. The Epic Times recently released a docudrama called Gender Transformation. The film examines the complex issues surrounding transgenderism and youth. I spoke with Tobias Elvhage, the director and writer of the film. He told me why he made the film and about the inspiring stories he came across. Take a look. What made you want to tell the stories of these individuals? Why did you think those stories needed to be told? Yeah, it was actually after after watching the, these programs on the state television in Sweden, and uh, because they showed how severe their side effects were, so I understood that this is not just you know okay you can change your gender and that's okay. No, there's so many implications. It's irreversible damage to these children. You know, teenagers they can they can you know start to change their gender uh, after just like one or two visits to a therapist or they just approve them and then they are sent on this path to, to, to change their gender. And it's irreversible. Even if they regret, they have, you know, severe damage to their bodies, severe damage mm -hmm. to, you know, reproduction, re reproductive uh, uh, abilities. And actually, one Swedish doctor called it, it's a, you know, chemical castration. I'd like to know more about the process of making this film. You interviewed these individuals, these private individuals, right? And you're asking them to reveal very personal stories so that, that are also very much private. So how is that like? You realize, like Chloe Cole, it was really powerful to interview her because she, she, you know, she removed her breast as a, at a really early age, like I think it was 15 or 16 years old, um, and then after that she regretted quite, you know, soon after she did it, and then she realized a lot of things about what it is being a a, a girl, what it is being a woman, so. She learned that, you know, before she didn't appreciate it at all. I mean, she had no good role models of being a, a, a lady, being a, you know, how, so she thought, why would I be a woman? Like, that's just, you know, useless. And she had also a lot of other underlying issues. And that's so interesting to, to, to see that, okay, all these things actually were the cause of her wanting to, you know, not become a woman anymore. And through this now, she realized the value of being a woman. And for me, that was so, you know, it was also powerful and see, you know, how, to, how they get back their, you know. It sounds yeah, powerful. their life. Yeah, yeah it, it sounds was. powerful. And what, what is it um, you want people to take away after watching the film? Especially parents. I mean, I mean I'm from Sweden, so I actually, through this, we were filming in Sweden as well for the drama parts. We're not seeing so much about this, you know, dark side, what, what's happening, you know, the, the real side effects, the real implications. And, you know, this is so powerful for the parents. And I hope, I really hope it, it can help parents who are, you know, thinking about, okay, uh, what should I do in this situation and how can I help others? So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tobias Elvhage. Um, good luck with your movie and the premiere. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities will premiere tonight on Epoch TV at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can watch it there or go to gendertransformation.com where you can watch the first 10 minutes of the documentary for free. 
Americans have been bracing for a recession over the past year, but the prospect of an extended downturn has yet to materialize. For workers who are worried about job security, that means there's still an opportunity to negotiate a better salary or find another position. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. According to recent data from Bankrate, a third of U.S. workers are worried about job security. Analyst Sarah Foster says inflation, cost of living, and a robust job market are putting Americans in a strong negotiating position with their employers. On the one hand, you have inflation, which we know has not kept pace with workers' wages. So it's giving workers something to really rally behind with their employers. But then on the other hand, you also have this historically strong job market that's giving them the leverage. For those who have concerns about their job security, Bankrate found that nearly 90% say they plan to take at least one career action within a year. That could mean quitting, requesting a raise, asking for more flexibility, relocating, or searching for another job. Foster says not knowing when the last call to make these decisions will be is motivating workers to take action. When you've been talking about a recession for so long and it hasn't happened yet, it kind of makes you start to wonder, like, hey, is this on my is this going to be my future? Is this the reason why I should get ahead of it now and advocate for myself? She suggests that now might be a good time for employees to consider what they want. When a recession hits, it could be too much for workers to juggle. The best way to go about any of that is to really lean back on the skills that you bring and the value that you have within your company. I think in recessions, it becomes a bit tougher of a time to be asking for a raise just because you work longer hours or you work harder. Since March 2022, Bankrate found that 27% of workers worried about job security found a new position, 25% asked for more flexibility, and 24% requested a raise. So essentially, you could see workers still prioritizing work-life balance, flexibility, remote work, even in a downturn. And so I think it's impossible to say whether remote work completely goes away because we're in a recession. Pandemic work trends could continue, and many may still be reevaluating what their career means to them. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, we head over to Brussels, where Belgium's World Pedalo Championship took place for the second year on Sunday. And we take a look at the 21-year-old who set a new world record for solving the Rubik's Cube. And it's truly unbelievable. More on that after the break. Good to have you back. Have you ever tried those water bikes? Water bikes? You mean pedalos? Yeah, right, those. Well, in Belgium, they hold a competition that what organizers call the World Pedalo Championship. Let's take a look. The World Pedalo Championship in Brussels was in full swing yesterday at one of the city's biggest parks, the Bois de la Campe. The event, now in its second year, took place over two weekends and featured 22 teams from Belgium, Spain, France and England. It involved completing a circuit of just over 450 yards around the lake, to be completed continuously by each boat for a total of four hours. The atmosphere was lively and festive, with loud music and some flamboyant costumes. But despite the relaxed atmosphere, some competitors say the event is physically quite demanding. 
It looks nothing when you stand here. You'd think it's relaxing, but it's actually quite intense and really makes you hot. It's important to never stop pedaling, and it's very important to avoid the ducks. You have to slalom around them. The fastest lap time stood at 5 minutes and 21 seconds. Event organizer Jean-Christophe Guis says that while talent is important, one also needs to put in the work. We are lucky to be in a setting that lends itself very well to this activity. It's open all year long, so the teams can come and practice all year long. And in general, by watching those teams, we could see some teams training early in the year. It gives us an idea of what the quality will be, and we're not disappointed this year. A team of eight men called Kefir won the event after completing 54 laps. Kostamines, NTD News. That looks quite fun, like quite the workout too. <laughs> but do you want to know what's really impressive? A 21-year-old California man solved one of the world's most intricate puzzles, the Rubik's Cube, in an unbelievable 3.13 seconds. Oh wow, that really is incredible. Max Park from Long Beach was diagnosed with autism when he was little. His parents say the cube has been a form of therapy for him. It all started when he used the cube to train his hands and fingers, with which he couldn't hold anything at the time. The competitive element was not part of the original plan, and his father says neither was the fame that came with it. I think he's just so much more focused on the actual times and beating the times and his goals. Um, it, it, it's funny because I think maybe part of his autism just prevents him from really understanding the fame or the adulation. Um, I think he intellectually understands it, but I, I don't think he feels it. His father says that despite his success, Max is very grounded. That is incredible. And you know, Evelyn, it was originally called the Magic Cube. Oh, no way. You know what? I can see why. Yeah. It takes magic to solve it. <laughs> yeah. And Rubik himself actually wasn't that good at it. It took him a month. No way. It's a lot longer than three and a half seconds. Good job. <laughs> all right. Uh, something to be truly proud of, I guess. All right. That's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us an email if you want. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.